MSW Media. I'd like to thank Switchcraft for supporting the show. Switchcraft is an incredibly fun mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narratives, and thousands of magical match three levels. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. And thank you to JennyKane.com for sponsoring the show today. Create the space you'll never want to leave and get 15% off your first order. Go to J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com and use my code AG at checkout. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., uh, Allison Gill, and today we have the last two chapters of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on Becoming American by Wajahat Ali. And these last two chapters are so wonderful um, because they t- he talks about my favorite thing, which is hope. And he talks about how it's far superior to cynicism. And I, and, and I want to, and that's chapter 10, but we're going to kick off with chapter nine here. And I'm going to, by the way, save the last bit of chapter 10 for uh, our discussion next week with the author, Wajahat Ali, who's going to be joining me on the final episode of this series. And you can submit your questions for the author uh, by going to patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. That's going to be for patrons only. You can submit questions. So please do that or look for your uh, look for the, a link to the form in your email box if you're a patron or a supercaster. All right, so chapter nine, elect a Muslim president, but beware of economic anxiety. And he opens up the chapter talking about how many immigrant parents who who came here after 1965, like his parents did, unconsciously chased whiteness, they say, for most, he says, for most of their lives. Many immigrant parents did this. Um, a prison, though, for his parents made them realize they were actually always closer to blackness. And now they were stamped, he says, as an alumni of the prison industrial complex. And if anything, you know, they, they've emerged more progressive, he says, advocating for criminal justice reform, etc. But none of that kept them from being shocked by the emergence into the limelight of a politician with the blackest and most, quote, Muslimy name ever, Barack Hussein Obama. Now, uh, roll your eyes, he says, if you want. Many Americans at this time still believe Obama is Muslim. And then, and here is where Waj brings up something that I have always, I've long talked about. He talks about that moment 
at a McCain rally when a lady said, I can't trust Obama. He's, he's an Arab. And McCain said, no, 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 no. Took the mic out of her hand and said, no, ma'am, he's a decent family man. And a citizen I just happen to have disagreements on with fundamental issues. But he's not an Arab. And everyone was like, yeah, that's nice of John McCain. And I'm like, no, don't. He just said that you can't be Arabic and a decent man at the same time. And that's what Waj points out here. He says, I realized two things. The birther conspiracy conflated Obama with being Arab and Muslim and black are all interchangeable and made him appear to be an insidious villain with a secret anti-American plot. And second, he says, although most of America thought McCain's interjection was praiseworthy, it was actually kind of offensive to the rest of us, unquote. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, he goes on here in the chapter to say, you know, we, we were treated like, he says actually, quote, we were treated like a contagious venereal disease. During the 2008 campaign, Muslims and Islam were worse than herpes. If you hung around it too often, you might catch it. And we, he says, we would linger forever and ruin your political life. But Obama's campaign volunteers removed two Muslim women wearing hijab who were standing behind him on the podium. That actually happened so that they wouldn't appear in photographs. And that was in 2008. And two months before the election, Waj says he was, um, he was given a ticket to a excruciatingly expensive fundraiser in Silicon Valley. Um, and Howard Dean was there. He was the chairman of the DNC. And uh, Waj actually asked Howard Dean why Dems weren't openly embracing Muslim voters. And, and he actually said, why? The election is two months away. And the fundraiser was hosted and attended by Muslim Americans. And he says, you want our votes and our money, but you don't want to date us publicly? Got it. That was the message. But for the sake of the country, Waj continues, we decided to take the humiliation. And, and Waj reminds us that here in the United States, in America, communities of color have always had to put their, quote, economic anxieties second, in second place, to placate the economic anxieties of quote-unquote real Americans from the quote-unquote Rust Belt, right? And even though Obama uh, and Democrats didn't openly embrace Muslims, the Muslims embraced them. The overwhelming majority of Muslims, uh, Muslim Americans voted for him in 2012 when he ran for re-election. And he says Obama's farewell tour was bittersweet. Unlike other Obama voters, I never held him to be the chosen one or the progressive savior. He behaved exactly like I thought he would. A center-left Democrat who was intelligent, cautious, and spent far too many years playing nice with an obstructionist Republican Party that was committed to making him a one-term president. And, and, and Waj here compares Obama to an etch-a-sketch. Uh, he, he, it's whatever you want to impose upon him. He's your American dream, he says. He was the beauty of the hope and change message. He was the promise of what America could be. And, you know, Wash says here that maybe a Pakistani kid could become president, right? If America voted for Obama twice, why not our kids? And that is the power of Obama. He allowed the, na the nation to imagine collectively, you know, hey, what if? 
But uh, a black man, he said, had ascended to the White House and, quote, replaced 43 previous white men. A black man and his black family had replaced a white family and were now sleeping in the White House, once occupied by the Founding Fathers. Whenever black people of color or black people or people of color in America make any progress, white supremacy raises its ugly head, right? The demon, he, he, he says, the demons of white rage would rise with a fury to choke and wrestle this country back to 1953. And he says, he goes on to say, unlike President Bush, Obama didn't step inside a Muslim mosque until the final year of his presidency in 2016, just as Donald Trump was campaigning on a Muslim ban. And he said, you know, Obama said, we will rise and fall together. And, and 2016 was the first time. And, and, and Waj says Muslims were finally invited to the party. We finally made it. Some of us actually believed we were wanted. Our invitation was about to be rudely revoked, right, as we were about to walk through the front door. And that brings us to <clears throat> this uh, next section of the chapter, economic anxiety for them, perpetual anxiety for us. And it's on the bottom of page or middle, middle of page 205 in the hardback edition. And he said, this is when Waj was at the uh, Democratic uh, headquarters in New York City covering the 2016 election, because at the time he was writing for Huffington Post. And he was looking forward, he says, to, like all of us, to the balloons dropping at the, Jav- uh, the Javits Center, uh, at Hillary Clinton being announced as the first female president. We all thought it. We all thought it was an inevitability. 63 million Americans then voted for the former host of The Apprentice. The man who promoted, quote, the birther conspiracy. The guy who bragged on the Access Hollywood tape about grabbing people by the pussy. Of course, Waj was disappointed and shocked. We all were. But he was also reporting when he had to stay, maintain his professional composure. I, I remember where I was. I was at, a, at the back room of a comedy club broadcasting the results live. And and I'll never forget it because I had, it was right after Halloween and all the Halloween stuff was on sale. And when I was at Michael's, I think, getting some, something for, I don't know, something for Thanksgiving, gourds, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but I was at Michael's and they had this black crow, a raven, right? And I was like, oh, I'm going to get this too. It's like a, you know, it's like a replica. It looks like a real bird, but it's not. And I thought, haha, I'm going to bring this. And so the Republican Trump fan who I was going to be commentating with, I could hand it to him to quote unquote, make a meat crow. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I looked down and I grabbed all my gear and my sound equipment and everything. And I looked at the crow and I said, you know what? I'm going to leave it here. I just left it in the car. Whew. Anyway, <clears throat> Waj goes on. So he was he was disappointed by the election, maintained his professional composure. Um, he thought, you know, he saw that communities would unite and resist. Right. Maybe we could come out of this stronger. Like this is his hope. Right. This is where his hope is. He was trying to give some hope and perspective to to the people that he was reporting to. The earth will continue to spin on its axis, and tomorrow we will wake up and still be alive, and all is not lost. <laughs> Unquote. But journalists of color knew it was predominantly racism that was the driver for Trump's base, xenophobia, racism. 
knew it since he descended the escalator. And Waj also covered the Democratic National Convention in Philly in 2016 for HuffPost, for Huffington Post, and asked a lot of questions of both Clinton and Trump supporters, and, and would jokingly ask, kind of, if they would come visit him in the Muslim camps if Trump were elected. He says, quote, I was mostly serious. And he says, most of the white interviewees laughed, said it was silly. Black people I interviewed knew it could go down. Thankfully, everybody, including Republicans, he said, promised they'd help smuggle uh, in halal cheese steaks. <laughs> and he said he even had uh, this convention with a few Muslim voters for Trump. Um, he says, yes, they exist. And and he asked them, like, why? They, they said he was going to be great for the economy. That's why the Muslims, uh, Muslim Americans would, would vote for Trump, the few that wanted to lower taxes for the for the wealthy. Um, he's going to be tough against the quote unquote bad immigrants, referring to the undocumented and Mexican laborers who, according to them, the conservative Muslims take welfare and don't contribute. They're big on family values, such as ending abortion and gay marriage. And they believe the Republican Party would do that. Even Trump. But America's gatekeepers, he said, weren't ready to acknowledge the primary driving factor behind Trump's win. Instead, he says, we were deluged with endless commentaries and stories on the alleged economic anxiety of the white working class that felt betrayed by elites. They fell right into the arms of Trump. And he says, he says, this disproven theory, by the way, is like the Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers of American politics, incapable of dying, always coming back to haunt us in reboots and sequels. And, and he, he goes on to say that for the past five years, the actual research has shown that racial resentment was the most important factor in driving repubs that voted for Trump. So he didn't see much economic anxiety. He, he's, this is a great quote. I'm going to read it to you. He says, I didn't see much economic anxiety when I interviewed Trump supporters at the main rally a month before the election. For nine hours, I, immersed, I was immersed in an ocean of diversity. There was every type of white under the sun. And every white you could imagine had assembled for Trump. I talked to bikers for Trump, veterans for Trump, suburban moms for Trump, college kids for Trump, gun owners for Trump, business owners for Trump, seniors for Trump. Uh, he said it was a buffet of whiteness when he talked to as many of them as he could. None expressed economic anxiety as their primary reason of voting for Trump. And he says, and this is a great line too, the xenophobia and sexism were like a Pulp Fiction adrenaline needle right to the heart. And in fact, he, he brings up this great point, and we talked about this a lot, when there was the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, right? Because Trump had talked endlessly and incessantly about the invasion, the invaders from the south, the border, the we got to stop the, you know, the invaders. And that was the language used as justification to murder 11 innocent people at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. The exact same language. And he says, Wash says, what would stop another shooting, uh, stop another from shooting up a church like a white supremacist Dylan Roof had done in Charleston in 2015 or a mosque? And for the first time, he said, my neighborhood mosque hired armed security. And after the election, Waj was invited uh, frequently on CNN, MSNBC, 
uh, and the like, gaining favor uh, on those networks because he was prepared. He could speak in short, punchy sound bites, he says. And they would introduce him as Muslim journalist Wajahat Ali. Even though the, the, his appearances had nothing to do with his faith. And, and he says they, they never announce everyone else as like the Jewish journalist or the Christian journalist. Just, just him, the Muslim journalist. And, and also they kept him coming back because he was told, he says, that he, he's funny. And he is. He's absolutely hilarious. And he, uh, he, he goes on a little bit here to talk about how the fact that people are often shocked. People are often shocked that, that practicing Muslims can be funny. And he says a few years ago at an interfaith event in New York, he told the crowd of white liberals that being Muslim in front of them often felt like being stared at by curious and terrified zoologists who are amazed I learned how to lift my knuckles off the ground and walk erect for the first time. The audience responded with awkward silence. But then one day, Chris Hayes of MSNBC fame invited Waj onto his show to talk about the future of the Democratic Party. And he said, that's it. The conversation had nothing to do with Trump bashing Muslims or Islamophobia. It was so refreshing. I was called to do my job as a writer. I wasn't the Muslim guy or the liberal Muslim guy or the funny Muslim guy. I was just a guy, an American guy. That is what whiteness feels like, he said. You can just be. He said he was no longer ta uh, just talking about Muslims and Islam and Ramadan and Hajj or, or terrorism. He was talking about the news of the day and politics. His job. And he said there's something about peering, appearing on CNN that finally vaults you to, quote, respectable status in the eyes of immigrant uncle. But his play, he says, my play didn't do it. My speeches, nope. But being on CNN with Anderson Cooper, that's, that's what will get you a, a tear of pride. But he, he concerned a lot of community leaders, and they would give him a lot of unsolicited advice. Don't be too passionate. They'll think you're angry. You become excited and energetic, and then the people will think you have rage. Of course, the people, colonialism, whiteness. When people asked why the media engaged in absurd double standards with Trump, because they would often give him a free pass for his bullshit, they expected Waj to reply with ratings or access or book deals or proximity power, you know, power. And he says certainly all are true. And he recalls being in the CNN, the CNN green room in D.C., waiting to go on air, chatting with a reporter of color, Lamenting how toxic Trump's presidency had been for journalists and people of color. They said, quote, yeah, but it's all good for our careers. I mean, I get on TV a lot more now, she replied. And he also says he was on set in New York for a CNN roundtable. Where they were talking about Trump's latest, whatever, racially charged word salad. And he just basically at that point told four progressive congresswomen of color, the squad, to go back and help fix the crime where they came from. Right. And the host of that particular show said to Waj, quote, you know, I really don't think Trump is a racist. He's just doing this for his base. And he says, I'm not God or a heart surgeon. 
I don't know what's inside someone's heart or their soul or their thoughts. I can only judge them by their actions, rhetoric, and behavior. And to be sure, my excellent reporters held Trump and his administration to account, did fantastic investigative reporting, asked tough questions, uncovered scandals and shady money trails, and suffered death threats and abuse simply for doing their job well. Also, most journalists of color didn't play the both sides game. They call out the hate and the racism and fascism for what it is, and history will remember them accordingly. But, he says, you know, for people who don't play the game, the main reason they gave him a pass is because he says they simply don't care. They didn't give a shit. They didn't give a shit. That's why they gave him a pass. That's why the journalists did that. And he says, I know it sounds a bit harsh. You know, they aren't racist and hateful or hateful people. They never agreed with what Trump was doing. He just said they simply didn't give a shit. And he says, you know, you know how I know it's true? Because if Trump had launched his presidential campaign by promoting anti-white bigotry, hatred, and conspiracy theories, he'd never have been elected president. And he says, you know, about these journalists that just didn't give a shit, that he said his hate never affected them, so they didn't care. It never affected their parents, their families, right? Their communities. They were removed from it. They were just spectators not victims of it so they didn't hear it or feel it they just re reported on the casualties he said with detached objectivity and he says quote it didn't hurt that it also made for some great tv all right with that we're going to come back on page 214 with build the multicultural avengers capes optional and i need to take a quick break so stick around we'll be right back Hey everybody, it's AG, and I know from experience that decorating a home is a difficult task, but it's also a fun one. You know, I gutted my entire house and redid everything, and Jenny Kane helped. I intended to partner with Jenny Kane to curate the living space of my dreams. I spend so much time at home now. I love being at home. With stylish interior essentials from Jenny Kane Home, it's easier to do that than ever. From timeless furniture to elevated accents... You can find something for every room, style, and sensibility. JennyKane.com is sponsoring the show today, and they're offering you 15% off your first order when you use code AG at checkout. Thanks to Jenny Kane Home, I have found the perfect piece for my space. I love their aesthetic, effortless Californian. Uh, it's just clean lines, wonderful, beautiful. Uh, whether it's a candle or a throw or the sofa, they make a room look beautiful and feel complete. I feel like I'm in a boutique of my own making, and I love it. My new favorite thing is my uh, alpaca throw. And as a matter of fact, Bruce Willis, the podcat, has usurped it from me. But some every once in a while, I'd steal it back. It's so comfy and warm and beautiful. And it's comfortable. It, it's minimalist. Everything by Jenny designed to make you feel instantly at home. And if you're like me and can't get enough of Jenny Kane, I recommend going to Jenny Kane Rewards. You get exclusive perks and benefits like birthday surprises, early access to new stuff, new launches, plus you earn up to 10% back on all your purchases. Join today, you'll get 100 points right off the bat. Create the space you'll never want to leave at JennyKane.com. Get 15% off your first order when you use code AG at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com and use promo code AG. Today's show is also brought to you by my favorite game. It's called Switchcraft. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I'm such a fan of Match 3 mobile games anyway, but a lot of them are just pretty much the same, right? Even the themes, just maybe different colors. Same tired old format always remains the same, but you don't get 
that kind of riveting story that keeps you on the edge of your seat. Until now, Switchcraft stands out as the exception. This amazing mobile game brings to life a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. It's incredible. It features thousands of magical mastery levels, and Switchcraft boasts TV-worthy writing. It really is, and it's a choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, which is awesome. It has beautiful artwork and intriguing characters, in addition to characters uh, from different cultures. The story includes characters also with disabilities and those who identify as LGBTQ+. I love it. I love this game so much, and players can take part in a multitude of challenges while experiencing the unfolding awesome storyline. The game never bores me because it's so captivating. I want to keep playing to find out what happens next. Switchcraft casts you in a role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top witch academy, by the way. And the story starts with the disappearance of your best friend. And now you have to unravel the mystery of her disappearance and play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels. You download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are now on the bottom of page 214 in the hardback edition of Go Back to Where You Came From by Wajahat Ali. And this section is called Build the Multicultural Avengers, Cape Optional. And this is the, this is the part about how we fight back. He says, we should build our own multicultural Avengers, a coalition of the willing, to quote GW. But this time it's dedicated to life and restoration instead of death and annihilation. And he says here he keeps the, the superhero theme going, saying we have to take on our uh, most dangerous foe and we have to be united to do it. And that's Thanos, a mad, a mad titan who wants to decimate half of living creation to bring forth his maniacal vision of balance and peace to the universe, right? By the way, America's Thanos is white, he said. It seeks control of government, finance, media, law enforcement, violent extremist group, social media messaging to restore, quote, balance that will make America great again. It has allies all across the globe, unquote. And even though right now, and we know this, we've talked about this on the Daily Beans a ton. Right now, number one threat is violent extremism, domestic white supremacy, violent extremism, fueled by crazy conspiracy theories. But now Wash has, the problem is, is that this is no longer fringe. It's mainstream. And that was, has always been one of his fears, and mine too, and I think all of ours, that Trumpism will outlast Trump, right? It's not just about getting rid of him or arresting him or holding him accountable. There are 74 million people that voted for that guy. And he says here, by the way, hate and fear still sell. They work. They feed a 24-7 news cycle. They prey on rage and pain and ignorance and loss. And we know that. We saw that in, in, with what happened to Facebook, how we've got Facebook papers that show that they gave an anger emoji seven times the weight of a like or a love emoji. React, right? He says, we all have to rise up together and stop this because it will affect our present and future generations. What happens if you have a kid or somewhere down the line you have a kid and that kid is biracial and your um, amazing grandkid of, of mixed race, what if they were mocked and ridiculed for the color of their skin or, or bullied into believing they could never be president of the United States because of their color or gender? What happens, he says, if America told them, go back to where you came from? Why would you want to be responsible for helping create that reality? 
And he says, he says, what if you could help in some meaningful way? Would you, wouldn't it be worth it? It would be so worth it. I'm, I don't even have kids. It's worth it to me. And he says, in fact, deferring to a solitary hero or leader to save us from all of our problems brings us authoritarians and strong men. Anyone who thinks that one person can solve our problems is a problem. <laughs> but when people come together around shared values in their communities, change can happen, he says. And he, he, he does admit, he does say here, I'm, I'm also not a naive, wide-eyed optimist. We won't win over everyone, but we got to do it. We have to try. Create a community of service that looks out for each other and helps people in need. I feel like we have that in our, in our Daily Beans, Muller, She Wrote, World. Day. I, I feel we have that. We need to expand it. He says, you know, people who look out for those in need, like superheroes. And he says, if you're asking how you can be an ally, that means you have the desire and perhaps also some privilege, some power to help. And of course, he quotes Peter Parker. With great power comes great responsibility. So let's use that power to build a multicultural Avengers and defeat Thanos. He says, quote, don't make the same mistake Thor did in Infinity War when he asked that when he axed Thanos in the chest and let him live. Remember, go for the head. And then he, there's an asterisk and he says, figure, asks figuratively, not literally. Thank you. And that brings us to a chapter 10, which is just amazing. He says, invest in hope, but tie your camel first and tie your camel first is it comes from islam it's an old phrase and we'll, we'll, it's a couple pages into the into the chapter but he talks about what it means and and it's tie your camel first means do everything you possibly can because the old the old saying goes tie your camel first and let god do the rest basically and and so basically what he's what he's trying to say is do everything humanly possible and then it's up to god and the reason he brings that up is because he's talking about his daughter when his daughter had cancer. But he opens the chapter with invest in hope. He, when his parents left everything in, in Pakistan to come here, that what they came here for, hope. He says hope. In America, they would make their dreams come true, make their dreams into a reality. Something better, something bigger, something more. And he says in America, they would defy the odds and actually thrive in a country that segregated and brutalizes black people, a country that denied women the right to vote until pretty recently, a, a country that, that passed legislation to ban people who looked like his parents from arriving on its shores, the same country. But in America, he said they would be accepted in spite of their brown skin, their religion, and their accents. In America, they could plant new roots. And then he, he reminds us that America is an insane country. So first of all, we elected a, a game show host to be our leader. A, a TV show star. He says a reality TV show star and failed businessman over an experienced, competent woman. Because Hollywood convinced us that that guy had mastered the art of the deal. He said, we did the same thing in the 80s when we elected Ronald Reagan, an actor, to help us end the Cold War as he unleashed, quote, the war on drugs at home against black and brown communities, unquote. He says, America's insane. We're terrified of socialism. We love giving tax cuts to the rich, 
we have affirmative action, but you know, we hate affirmative action. He says, but we're totally cool with legacy admissions into Ivy League schools. We hate spending money on education and healthcare, but we're fine with spending it on forever wars, failed wars in the Middle East. It's an insane country. It's a pro-life. We're a pro-life nation, but we're fine with hundreds of thousands of Americans dying in a pandemic. Because he says, because we got to get the economy going. <laughs> and he says, yeah, it's an insane country, but it's still so lovable, he says. It's hard not to be smitten and get kind of intoxicated with, the, I, you know, the Statue of Liberty. How How can you not be romantic when you find out, he says, that the statue was sculpted by a Frenchman, Bartholdi, originally modeled after a Muslim woman dressed in traditional Egyptian dress. And given a gift as a gift to the United States for the centennial of the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. He says here, quote, the story is as American as apple pie, which was originally made by the Romans. <laughs> but that, the Lady Liberty, the bring us your tired, your poor, that, that is the idea. That's the America that Waj's parents believed in. He says, quote, he's now 74, and for the first time in his life, he made a plan to leave the country in case Trump won in 2020. And a lot of, I guess, this is a lot of conversations like this happen. Where is safe? Where do we go? He says New Zealand was at the top of the list. But it's everything's expensive. But where can they go? Where? Where is safe, right? He says, quote, I've been asked this question by friends trying to find an ideal location that provides security, but also excellent Wi-Fi and halal options just in case the country turns on them overnight he says he doesn't think a place that like that exists he says there's an unspoken realization that our generation quote is facing an onslaught of absurd challenges it's like god decided to push play on the fuck shit up mixtape love that a once in a lifetime pandemic had killed four million people but he said if there's a positive that came out of the pandemic we got to see ourselves clearly. He says, quote, we can see our sins, virtues, flaws, successes, angels, and demons. The wealth gap, for example, we have the highest of all the G7 countries, the biggest wealth gap. And the lowest minimum wage. And he says, disinformation and propaganda have distorted the truth. And a nation that can't unite over basic facts is, quote, broken, susceptible to exploitation, lies, flattery, dangerous propaganda, foreign interference, and an authoritarian iron rule. And then, of course, he says, good old-fashioned racism and xenophobia. They'll always be around. But even if the pandemic and the racism are tamed, he says, the world might be uninhabitable in a few decades because of the climate crisis. But I still want us to invest in hope, he says. And he, he he concedes it sounds foolish, it's and masochistic, right? Because and we've talked about this. You know, I love the hope. I'm the hopium peddler, according to some trolls online. But when you hope, when you allow yourself to hope, you when you allow yourself to think that life could improve and be better, it exposes you to disappointment. It makes you vulnerable to being disappointed and crushed 
He says, trust me, I know I've been there. However, he says, I refuse to embrace the alternative, which is cynicism and apathy. They're cheap and lazy, but so inviting and temporarily comforting. They require zero investment. You just sit in the cheap seats as a spectator and yell, boo, at the fools who decide to step in the ring and get their noses bloodied. But, he says, it was hope that helped him endure, him and his wife endure daughter's stage four cancer. Thought the Ali curse had finally struck again. Thought it would skip that generation. They thought He thought his kids were safe. He said he recited the barter prayer. Take me. Take me instead. And he says as he sat in his hotel room absorbing the news when he learned of it. And that's when he remembered the, the famous saying in Islam. Tie your camel first and put your faith in God. Exhaust every option. And that's what he and his wife decided to do. Every decision, everything within their capacity to give her a fighting chance. For, for the entirety of the summer of 2019, they were hospital parents. And the percentages weren't in her favor. He said, every night as my family slept, I stayed up until the early morning. I couldn't rest. I spent hours preparing myself for every scenario, every timeline, every future that could emerge. And he said that, that doing that was actually an act of self-preservation. And I kind of, you know, I've never experienced anything like that. But I, but I understand that, that route of self-preservation. He had, he said he had to confront the truths and the facts. He says he kept looking at the percentages and he, he, he admitted he couldn't afford to be blindsided by absolute devastating tragedy. And they needed a liver donor. Time was running out, so what he decided to do was tie his camel. He he put he did everything he could, and he announced it on social media. And they got a call that an anonymous donor volunteered. It was a perfect match. And he had done everything he could. And when the time came for the surgery, uh, he he says, "Here, I'll just read it." He picked up his daughter. I picked up my daughter and laid her on the table. She briefly opened her eyes. I recall saying, be brave. Your Baba loves you very much. I'll see you soon. I kissed her on the cheek and I let her go. After that, there's nothing else a parent can do except hope and pray. When the doctors did finally come back out, they said everything went perfectly, perfectly. And it was echoed by all the nurses too. And later on, he says, they've actually met the anonymous donor. Sean Zahir. Pakistani Muslim American who was living with his wife in Washington, D.C. And uh, apparently what happened was his wife, Rita, followed Waj on Twitter. And he says a stranger risked his life to step up and help a girl he never met to give a piece of his liver so she could live. By sharing her story, Waj says not only did we help save her life, but actually, some of those donors, 500 people came forward, were later matched with other kids who needed livers. And now, Georgetown is creating a center in Waj's daughter's honor to expand, quote, the scale and scope of the transplants. And, interestingly, 
a lot of these people totally loathed Wash's politics. And he says he knows because they told him so. But it was important for him to experience that because he was kind of losing faith in humanity. He said he was becoming bitter, losing faith in fellow Americans. But sometimes he says people do change. He says it's absolutely possible. And he says the story isn't new. Communities persist and thrive even as they suffer face persecution and are humiliated. But they endure. He says sometimes all you have is hope that when the page turns, it'll bring with it a better story that doesn't end in tragedy. I'm a romantic at heart. I can't help it. Despite my attempts at cynicism, I still believe that some people can change and the future can bring bright days ahead. How can I not? I was supposed to be dead. I take none of this life for granted, he says. And, you know, we survived a pandemic. Many did not. But, he says, the way that the United States deals with its Muslim residents and his, its Islam residents will be a critical test, right? Because unlike the Irish Catholics or Eastern European Jews, they don't blend in, right? They don't blend in. They're not accepted by the whiteness. But, he says, will America stretch and expand for us? I must keep hoping it can and will. And then he talks here about you know, a, a, another dream. He brings up another dream. You know, his family is big on dreams, he said. So he says, let me tell you one last one before the book is over here. And he says his dad told him about this dream. And he, he not only once, but twice he had this dream. And it was many years apart. And it, some little changes, but the, the basic premise is the same. He says he saw himself Dada and me in a beautiful, spacious mosque filled with people. They had just done the call to prayer. People were standing up, filling the rows, preparing for the imam to lead them in prayer. And they kept walking toward the front. But after a while, his grandfather would stop and say, you continue on. And Waj's dad said, no, come with us. And he's like, this is as far as I go. Now, he says in the first retelling, my father said he stopped and urged me to go. And then he woke up. And in the second telling, we both kept advancing forward. Then he woke up. And he says, and Wash says, when I, ha when I have this dream, and I, I suspect I will, I hope I'm walking alongside his family. And that the inheritance, he says, quote, I've left them is filled with wisdom, love, truth, and joy. And I hope it sustains them. I hope it makes them proud. I hope they can forgive me for my numerous mistakes and look at me with understanding and kindness instead of scorn and pity. And in the end, he said, we want our children to reflect the best of us. But the truth is, they inherit all of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, the male pattern baldness, the entire baggage. I just want to increase the percentages in their favor. And he said, I thought I'd start with their names. And that's, I want to leave it at that because I, when he, when Waj comes and uh, on the show next week, that's what I want to ask him about is this last couple of pages about the names. And then of course we will ask him whatever questions you submit as patrons or supercasters 
Uh, and you can do that at patreon.com slash Mueller. She wrote or check your email, check your inbox for a link to the form to submit questions for Waj. Um, you got a, a couple of days, I think, to get those questions in, maybe a day, maybe two to get your questions in after this episode comes out. So please do that. Um, there's also an episode of Mueller. She wrote out today. Check that out if you'd like a lot of interesting stuff going on. In the uh, Tom Barrick case, if you're interested in any of that, you can check out Mueller, she wrote. And then I'll be back tomorrow with Dana on the beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been A.G. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.